Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome everyone to episode number four of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective of wrestling at the Mecca, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back, as always, is a man that went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting in August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Rizzi. John, how are you doing today? I am doing fabulous, man. It's uh, It's been quite a uh, wonderful week, and uh, I love reminiscing about what happened 50 years ago. It makes me feel uh, uh, as old as I am. And if you'd like to be one of the first people to hear 50-year flashback of wrestling at Madison Square Garden, all you got to do is go to our Patreon www.patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Members in the Superfan, PWS associate producer, producer, or executive producers tier will get access to this show early. And starting at only $5 a month, it'll get you in the door and you'll have access to all the original Pro Wrestling Spotlight original broadcasts from 1989 to 1995. And the higher the level, the more benefits you'll get. From Zoom calls with John Arizzi, access to 8mm films we discuss here, to unseen videos, and vintage magazines being sent out to you. And there's only one way to experience it all, and that's becoming a member of John's Patreon page. Patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Join the community, hear the history, Patreon.com slash John Arizzi. John, is there anything anything new coming up in the Patreon you want to talk about? Well, Tim, there's always new stuff on the Patreon. I mean, we've been uploading uh, uh, content each and every week. Every Sunday, I put up new content. Uh, I mean, we have uh, the classic stuff from 1972 uh, with Bruno San Martino and Pedro Morales put up there recently. Every Sunday is a surprise for my patrons. They don't know what they're going to get. And basically what I do is I pull a box out and I stick my hand in it. There was a game years ago in the 60s called Feely Mealy. I don't know if you had that board game. Do you remember what that board game was? I think it was you put your hand in the box and got to figure out what's inside the box. Exactly. And that's how you win. So uh, Feely Mealy, that's what I do with the cassette tapes. I pick out a few and then I see what's on there. And, you know, some of them are embarrassing. And because when you hear them, I mean, there's my little voice on there. My sister's screaming in the background, babies crying, my little niece my mom, uh, my brother-in-law, everyone's watching wrestling and and I'm trying to shush them all. But uh, that's all on the tapes as well. But Feely Mealy, here's a quick funny story about my mom. My mom had, my mom had a great sense of humor and she had dentures. Uh, so, I mean, we decided to play Feely Mealy and, and, you know, I stick my hand in the box and <laughs> her freaking dentures are in there. Oh! She kind of, you know was sly and and that was that was that's a memory that was crazy and i was like oh oh my god and she was laughing and with no teeth and and uh but that was kind of the way our household was back then what i love about the patreon is you don't have these things exactly lined up you have so many archives john so many archives we're just doing it before the podcast talking about yeah. some of the archives you have from freddie blassie and stuff and, and you have so many great stuff. You just never know what you're going to put up there. So every time I go on, I'm like, oh, what's this or what's that? And you don't even know because you just pull out a box. You go, I'll grab this. I'll grab this and I'll throw this up. So it's always a pleasure. And if you can get in for so cheap, yeah. but the, the larger ones, if you want to spend more, 
it'll be worth your while. If you can't, yeah. no problem. But if you want to and you go, hey, I would like this or would like that, like the $100 one I think is – Well, is that's almost- for the executive producer. We only have one of those right now. And the guy gets like listed as the executive producer on the podcast and, and on the uploads. And then we, um, I send him four wrestling magazines a month. I mean, that, those were from the 60s and 70s. So there's your value right there. And I send those to people who are in the 25 or $25 or up level. And we also, for that $25 a month level, we do video chats with them every month. Uh, they get, uh, there's even, you know, uh, photo uh, uploads. I, I upload uh, photo sets uh, on watermark so they can print them out and use them. Uh, and we have just so many perks. I mean, the eight millimeter films, but for $5, you're getting the podcast, the John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, five days before it's released nationally, internationally. So you get that. And you get all the archives of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show uncut with commercials in them from uh, April 9th, 1989, right through uh, the current uh, episode we just uploaded uh, was from November of uh, 1991, because each week we're, we're covering a show from 30 years to the week. So we have a, a, so many cool things on that Patreon account, patreon.com slash John Arezzi. Come on in for five bucks a month, browse it, take a look around, listen to the content. I mean, for 10 bucks a month, you're getting all of that historic audio interviews that I did backstage at Madison Square Garden with the likes of the Valiant Brothers and uh, and Lou Albano, the Grand Wizard, Freddie Blassie, uh, just so much classic stuff. Uh, so it's it's worth five bucks a month. It's worth ten bucks a month, uh, and we really would appreciate your support because that really helps uh, cover the cost of, of of everything that we do. Yeah, all the things that we talk about on this show have to be put together. I think that's an interesting. These these shows you have from the 80s into the 90s are on cassette. So someone's got to, you know, dub them over, edit, edit them, get them. them, load them up, put them somewhere you can get. So it takes time, and, and that's what it is. It's actually just paying for itself. It's helping us put these shows together, and we appreciate it. So it's not like you're paying one thing and you get the same thing over and over again. You just never know what you're going to be getting when you join the Patreon. Yeah, and, and now we have the YouTube channel rocking. I mean, the YouTube channel is uh, with clips every single week. I mean, almost every day we're putting up new YouTube clips now, and uh, the name of the YouTube account is simply youtube.com slash pro wrestling spotlight so go to that and uh that gives you a really good taste of what's going on on the podcast we got you know we had to pay for the illustrator and the guy who does the graphics so patreon really just covers the costs of uh what we're doing uh, on the uh, hard cost side because it you know it literally is a, a little over a thousand bucks a month to, you know with the team and you know the distribution uh, subscription fee you got to pay and but we're building it it's building nicely i'm very excited it, it's good to be on your own and independent uh from anyone you could do what you want you can control it you can see all your analytics and uh, i'm really having a ball with it and this show uh as a new podcast out there is gaining a lot of traction tim a lot of traction that's fantastic. So this is also available early, so it won't be on the 50th anniversary. If you become a Patreon member, you get to hear this show early. Yes, you do. You'll you'll get the show at least a week early from when the date of the show was. Like, for example, this is December 6, 1971, and everyone's going to get it December 1st. That's fantastic. Hey, listen, one thing. I'm sorry. I got I to gotta say, this is your entry. I don't even know how you're doing this with us because this is Christmas season, and I know that uh, your alter ego is Santa Claus, and you got a great podcast for the Olympics, but you also, uh, let's just talk to you a second before we get into the show about Christmas, Santa Claus, what you do, because that is such a noble thing, because everybody loves Santa Claus. And the only other person I know who does Santa is Mick Foley every year, and you're doing it too. So tell us a little bit about that. I'm interviewing you for a second before we get started with the show. Well, uh, basically, I I started it last year. We were going through COVID, and it was a pandemic going on. No one really can go outside, and I was using Zoom a lot. And I was like, you know something? We could do Santa Claus like this. So I started Mm -hmm. looking into it thinking I I had this great idea, a million-dollar idea, and then I found a whole community of Santas that do it. So I was like, oh, my gosh. So I started telling friends and family members about, you know, I will give – 15 minutes for so much money to sit down with your child and stuff and do a, a Zoom with Santa. And um, I got a friend uh, who does it, and we, we were talking about it, and he goes, well, this is what I do. He puts he puts a form together, John. So I put a form together, and basically the form is, if I'm talking to you, it'll be like, what's your name, boy or girl, how old they are, 
Do you have an elf on the shelf? Do you have a dog? And you play along with that. Oh, 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 oh Johnny, Johnny, do you, do, you, do you have a dog, Johnny? It, what, what's your dog's name? So if you had a dog, you'd tell me. Gigi. Oh, Gigi. Okay, grab Gigi. So the kid will go grab <laughs> He's Gigi. He's dead. Okay, so if you can grab Gigi and bring him to the to to the Zoom, yeah. you bring it, hold Gigi, go, Gigi, this is Santa Claus. Do me a favor. I want to bring little Johnny some toys on Christmas Eve, so please don't bark and don't bite Santa. Can you tell Gigi that? And you tell Gigi, and you just get into the – so the form I give them really goes into detail about their child or child's um, or kid's whatever yeah um and it just you, you get involved like that so they really start to believe and that's the joy of it for me is a couple of different things one of the thing is you know you can only believe in santa claus for so long because once you stop it's over so enjoy the years that you can enjoy santa claus with your child before it's over before some other kid in elementary school goes there's no santa claus yeah and the other it's thing i guess to do which is really enjoyable to me is like giving back to the community. Going to mm-hmm. last year, um, a, a friend of mine, his sister's house burnt down, and uh, the kids were staying at a hotel, and we we did a Zoom like that. And uh, I called my buddy up. I go, hey, would they mind me showing up at the hotel for them? And she's like, oh, that'd be fantastic. I said, okay, great. So I showed up at the hotel for the kids, and I had a distance. We made a distance, and I said to him, I said, oh, uh, I have so many toys in my bag. I was wondering if I could bring some of yours early. Is that okay with you? And they're like, oh, my gosh. And I gave them you know, toys, a backpack That's and stuff. wonderful. It's just, you know, it's just a small amount of time, and once it's gone, it's gone. So I, I really enjoy being Santa and be able to give back to my community and stuff like that. It's a fun thing to do. It, it's fun yeah, it is. I mean, it's yeah. a, absolutely a, a great thing to do. And now we're in smack dab in the middle of the Christmas season right now, because you know we're we're covering December. It yep. is December. Christmas is just a few weeks away. Uh, so how does someone get a hold of you uh, to perhaps uh, have this uh, wonderful magical experience for their kids? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, it's it's on Instagram. It's called Jolly Santa Tim on Instagram. And if you shoot me a message, I'll give you 25% off of a visit with Santa, a virtual visit with Santa. Say, say you got to mention John's name. I heard you on uh, MSG, you know, our 50-year flashback. And uh, say, you you know, John, and then I'll give, I'll send you an email and say, hey, I love John. Here's 25% off, and here's a form to fill out. And once you fill out the form, you send it back to me, and I'll give you a call and go, okay, let's figure out a good time that we can have yeah. you on. Where are you going to do? Is it for you? Is it for your grandchildren? Is it for your niece or nephew? So I get people doing it for other family members, other things, and I want to make sure it's okay with the parents. You know? Yeah, I have uh, I have two great great nieces, not a great niece, a gr- two great great nieces. One is uh, six, and the other one is uh, two. So I think I'm going to have uh, Santa Tim uh, do a Zoom with these young uh, young ladies out in Colorado, is where they live. I love it. I love to do it. It's it's fun for me. It's fun for the family. Everyone gets involved in it. And being last year that there was a pandemic going on, it was really big. This year will be. Probably not as big being the Zooms, but, you know, gosh, it was, John, it was amazing. I was doing ones in Japan. I did some yeah. in Germany. People well, that Santa's part- universal, man. He's universal. But I didn't know how people ha- – I was always asked, how would you find out about me? How would you find yeah. out about, oh, I heard you on here. I heard my friend had this done. They thought it was fantastic. So I want to do it for my – you know, the kids <laughs> are in the Army, and they're over in Germany, stationed in Germany, and have grandkids. Can we be part of it? And like, oh, absolutely. So we all get on the Zoom together. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's around this time that we're going to cover this episode, I uh, attempted to be Santa Claus for my nieces and nephews out on Long Island. Uh, and it was it was in 75. I remember it now that uh, I had a plastic Santa suit. It was a plastic suit. You know, I didn't have the resources or just was too lazy to go try a real Santa suit. And I had, uh, you know, the beer and then I, and I had cotton balls that I taped on my um, eyebrows. They were cotton. I put little red uh, cheeks and, you know, my sister, older sister wakes the kids up. Santa Claus is here. Santa Claus is here. And I was freaking sweating in this, in this plastic suit. I mean, cause it was like, it was like you're in a trash bag uh, and the kids come downstairs all kind of confused and they look and they see me and, and, and all of a sudden one of the eyebrows falls off <laughs> and my niece is like, that's not Santa. That's uncle Johnny. Oh. So that ruined it for them. But anyway, we got a good laugh out of it. This is why some, I grew the beard. This is why yeah. I grew my beard. I'm actually getting it dyed tomorrow. It looks so- good. Yeah, it's going to be – It's a. It, I'm a real bear Santa because I, I never wanted to be – I'm looking at pictures, John, so you mentioned that. I saw pictures of when I was with Santa back yeah. when I was a kid. My parents had a Santa come across, and he had a mask on. 
And I'm looking at it now. I'm, 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 I'm horrified now, John. Yeah, looking of course. At it. I couldn't imagine as a kid. I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I mean, so, you, you, you were kind of scared, right? Yeah. Oh, I was totally scared of this yeah. guy. I'm and, and, and think And think of what we're going to do now. Now we're going to go from Santa Claus to the vampire, Freddie Blassie, in this episode. <laughs> it's per- only on this show. Only on this show. We'll do- well, that I'd is like right. To start, I'd like to start off with something a little different. We always like to do a little before we do the matches. Yes. Um, Going into the WWF titles, they had a lot of tournaments or matches that never really happened. And I want to get your uh, your perspective on these. One of the first ones uh, is about the WWF Heavyweight Championship being awarded to Buddy Rogers in 1963. So they said he won a tournament in Rio de Janeiro, defeating mm-hmm. Antonio Rocca in the finals. What do you know about, like, do, why would they do something like that? If I had to go see a match between Buddy Rogers and Antonio Rocca, I think it'd be fantastic. Why yeah. would they make up a well, match there, like that? There was a simple reason for it, and that was the, um, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation uh, was formed at that time. They were separating the territory. Uh, so the NWA title, uh, they had to find a way to get the title off of Buddy Rogers. So to appease him... And to have Vince McMahon Sr., uh, you know, do nicey-nice with uh, the NWA, uh, they created the WWF title and gave it to Rogers as a way to kind of appease him. Uh, but they were not enamored with Buddy, too. So, I mean, um, it was a way to get the title on him, but it was more of a transitional situation to get the title on Bruno Sammartino, who they really wanted to put the, uh, the world championship on. Bruno was not someone that the NWA wanted to put the title around because he was considered too ethnic. He was Italian. And in the Northeast, that was the selling point, was that he had this huge Italian following. And, you know, Antonio Rocca, Antonino Rocca, Argentina Rocca, whatever you call him, there's different ways to call him that. But he was he had that huge ethnic following in New York at the Garden and, and was, uh, you know, just an icon and a legend there. Uh, that was kind of the tradition that Vince McMahon Sr. did. I mean, he wanted an ethnic champion to draw in those those fans of that champion, whether it was Rocca, San Martino, then Pedro Morales, who was Puerto Rican. Interesting. I, I never knew that. So I also wondered why they wouldn't do something like that. So you got Buddy well, Rogers. Well, that's why I'm a. That's why they call me a, a, a historian. A, what do you call it? a historian? I am. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And and and, and Tony Araka, He he was in great shape. He was a great. He was in great shape. Yeah. And I remember seeing something in one of Aptor's magazines, um, talking to him about living to like he was like 150 years old because he found out. he found that secret. But he died. It seemed he died pretty early. He died at like Fairly 49. Young, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, he died really young, 40, what is it, 49, Tim? Yeah, Something like that. He died in, they, they, that's the whole, there's a little controversy of when he was born. And when, yeah. he he passed away in uh, March 15th of 1977. They're saying he was 49. He could have been a little older. We're not really sure. But like, someone, it might have been, it might have been because he was back and uh, doing some announcing with Vince McMahon. And, you know, maybe there was a, maybe, maybe it uh, kind of sped the death along a little bit. You know, all the pressure that he might have been under at the time. <laughs> Who the hell knows? Uh, but, uh, yeah, he died at a young age. He didn't leave. He didn't live to 150 like it was like recorded he- in the magazines. Going back to the matches that never really happened, one of the reasons we're talking about it today because we have one of the tag teams is Luke Graham and Tarzan Tyler. Supposedly, yeah. supposedly yeah. they won the title in 1971. Uh, yeah. They they lost it in, in, coming up. We will hear about that. But supposedly they beat Dick the Bruiser and the Sheik on June 3rd. However, there's no records of this. Another, yeah. why would you go through this all this trouble? Why not have a, just a match that they'd win the title? I think there was a situation where uh, the titles were uh, last on Beppo and Guido, the Mongols, uh, Beppo being Nikolai Volkov later on. For whatever reason, they left the territory or they split up and the titles were then vacant and they figured a way that they'd do a tournament, uh, a phantom tournament, and give the titles to Crazy Luke Graham and Tarzan Tyler. So that's how that happened. There's actually three different ones. Uh, the One of yeah. them was the Mongols beating the Mongols. The other one was winning a tournament in New Orleans. So again, places yeah. that you wouldn't believe. But then the last one for me was interesting, Pat Patterson. Pat yeah. Patterson and the Intercontinental Championship in September 3rd of 1979. The WWF introduced the Intercontinental Championship, a secondary championship, to the you know, like for mid card wrestlers like Patterson was. Right. And he was crowned the first Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion after allegedly a tournament in Rio de Janeiro. 
What's with Rio de Janeiro? I guess because people it's can't go there. It's a rib, an inside it. joke. That's all it was. There was no rhyme or reason behind it. They just thought it was funny. Someone said that uh, they picked it because Patterson couldn't pronounce Rio de Janeiro. Probably that could be. Your, that could very well be the reason. I just think that, that that's that's hilarious. Let's dive into the show. December sixth, nineteen seventy one. Attendance twenty two thousand ninety one. Around the same they usually get. Going back with you, uh, how did you get the tickets again this time, and uh, where did you sit? Well, it was once again a situation with me and Frank Favalli. Uh, my friend on Long Island, we um, had gone to all the shows together. Uh, I went to my first match with him and his dad. Then we had the big group in October. Uh, and then November was just Frank and I. And then uh, I believe uh, in this particular case, we actually went to the box office the night of the show in November to get the, sh- uh, the tickets for December. So we had like seventh row ringside. And then we got them right at the box office the night of the show. So you got them the night of the show? Yeah, the night of the, sh- the the night of the show a month before, so we bought them on November fifteenth for the December sixth show. We figured, all right, let's just get out of our seats now because the card wasn't an outstanding one. Uh, we ran to the box office, got our seats, and came back for the end of the show. You know, we made sure we saw Blassie. You know, there's a whole big story about that whole day. I was on pins and needles all day anyway. Uh, but that's how we did it. But, you know, we was like, oh, we got seventh row. What the hell? You know, we thought we'd get first or second row, but that didn't happen. Didn't happen. But let me ask you this. Bat, you were what now? Uh, you're still 14, correct? Yes, I was uh, 14 years old. Uh, I was going to turn 15 in January of 72. Okay. What were your parents thinking at the time saying, were they against you going to the garden once a month? Did they, were they okay with it? Was it at, at the time, was it something that kids your age could do? Uh, I think it was a different time and place. My, my dad worked nights and my mom, uh, you know, she was always afraid, you know, want you be careful and stay together, you know, uh, but they, she wasn't comfortable with me getting on a train, going to the garden. And then, you know, then we'd have to get on that 1110 train, uh, 10 station, get the train back to Babylon. Uh, So we got home after midnight and take a cab from the train station to the house or Frank's father would pick us up, uh, whatever it was. But, you know, she wasn't happy. She wasn't a happy camper about it. But, you know, she had to deal with it because I did it for years. And it's just different, you know, when you talk about going to other places, like going to Mid-South, where you can dr- you have to drive over to. This is the garden. This is a major, you know, New York City, getting into New York City, learning your way around New York City, getting on the train to get home. Because you can't take a cab home. You couldn't take no. a cab home. It'd be way too expensive. And it's just, uh, just listening to it, how you had to go about getting your tickets and getting in there and getting out. When you're leaving, you can't you know, hang out in the city anymore. You got to make that train because if you miss that train, you're yeah, stuck you're in the screwed. city. Yeah, you're screwed. And then you got to wait an hour to get back, you know? Oh. And it, it was a, it was a nightmare, you know. I didn't get I didn't I didn't have a, a good time convincing her that I was flying to California to see the uh Battle Royal in Los Angeles in 1974, but that's a story for another day. Story for another day. Let's start off the first match. Mario Soto defeated Mike Monroe. Ten minutes, forty-seven seconds. Kind of, kind of interesting about this. First of all, it's kind of like a, a TV match at the best. Uh, out of like forty-seven appearances of the Garden, uh, Mario Soto finally gets a win. But ten minutes for the first match seems like a long time. Why do you think it was? Uh, there were, you know, that was kind of a filler for people to get into their seats and. Uh, and Mike the Moose Monroe was kind of a guy who won sometimes on TV, as did Manuel Soto. So this was a good uh, – they were good workers. They knew how to put on a match and and just to kind of get the crowd in because the crowd really never settled in uh, until like the first or second match. I mean, it was, they were still filtering in from everywhere. And and the show started kind of late anyway. It started at 8.30. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. And then the, the second match, now we're going to our tag team matches, which on this card there's three tag team matches. It's a special attraction with the little people better known at the time as Midgets, Farmer Jeremy and Sonny Boy Hayes defeated Little Brutus and Sky Lolo, two out of three falls, after 21 minutes and nine seconds. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, it's a, you know, a lot of comedy in that match, you know, chasing the referee around, rolling around the ring with them, uh, people laughing. It was really, it was really just comedy to seeing the Midgets and they always put on a good show and they were, and a lot of these guys, they went around the horn together, so they knew each other so well. There wasn't a big, big, like dozens and dozens of them. And they all traveled together, and they knew each other's moves very well. It was very choreographed. I mean, out of all the matches, uh, the Midgets matches were pretty pretty choreographed, where they did the same spots over and over again, town after town after town. 
but it was pure just uh, just comic relief. I, I think the only midget or little person um, that I can remember was the Haiti kid because he had that whole angle with Mr. T later on. Right, and he used to do the, the cocoa butt. Right, he did yeah. a headbutt. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's the only one I know. But I remember watching yeah. them, and and they were great performers. And they used to get the referee involved in it, and everyone would have a good time. And it is a good time to bring in people. So now we're talking like there's 30 minutes into the show, and we've seen these two matches. Third match, Chief J Strongbow versus mm-hmm. Stan Stasiak ended in a time limit draw of 20 minutes. Now let's go back to Stan Stasiak. He's already done two great house shows with Pedro. Then he loses last month to uh, Gorilla Monster soon on November 15th. Now he draws with Jay, and now, spoiler alert, he has a couple more losses coming up. He was there for six months, but like he only had really two good months there, and after that, now he starts falling down the card. Yeah, I mean, that happened around the horn, you know, you lo- you do your losing, uh, you know, you do your two matches uh, that you were signed up to, br- you know, bring you into the territory to do, and he did those with Morales, and and then, you know, then they, and then basically what they do, the Garden always had the main events first, so then Stasiak probably did a run uh, with Morales uh, after their after their two matches at the Garden, then they would do Philadelphia, then they would Boston, they do Pittsburgh, and they do Baltimore and Rhode Island, and so so then he would have his main event status. Uh, in some of the other towns uh, where there were running shows. And then you go to the garden and you just kind of, you know, you just kind of segue him out until he leaves and then eventually comes back. And that's, that's another question I want to hit you on. When we're talking about like a Stan Stasiak, a known guy who's really good, when he's going around the horn, is he only going to like the Boston's and the Philadelphia's and things like that? Or is he playing smaller house shows also? And did they have them at the time? Well, they did. Uh, you're not, they, they'd have like little Jack Witchie's Arena, and they still run a little town in White Plains. It's Westchester County Center uh, where they do smaller shows, two or 3,000 people. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's kind of a secondary or tertiary arena. So, you know, you, you would work those shows as well. But in those those smaller little venues, like there was a, a place called uh, Sunnyside Gardens in Queens, which is a very small place. And the Brooklyn Rollerama up in the New York area. And it was basically a, a rolling rink where they put a ring up and uh, and then you'd, you'd have uh, him go over against like Emmanuel Soto or somebody like that. Do you remember the one in Comac? The Comac Arena? Yeah, it was the Long Island Arena. It was on uh, Jericho Turnpike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know they had hockey there one time, and they did mm-hmm. have wrestling. I remember seeing that. So something like that, would that yeah. be a place that like a Stan Stasiak would go and be the headliner? Yeah, or- yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. You know, uh, back then, yes. I mean, I don't think the uh, arena was operational anymore in the 70s. It might have been. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. That's what That's what used to happen. What I used to do, go there was a flea market, so it was definitely yeah right. Time. I, I missed that uh, old place. That was a good place. Uh, let's go to match number four. Victor Rivera defeated Jimmy Valiant in twelve minutes sixteen seconds. Yeah, I mean Rivera was a hot baby face uh, there as well, and he had a huge, huge following. Fans loved him. Jimmy Valiant was kind of on his way out at this time. He was teaming up with Beautiful Bobby, and you know he had went from baby face to heel. And they were ready to send him off uh, so he could uh, then compete in some other territories. He did a lot of work in St. Louis. Uh, he did a lot of NWA stuff, AWA stuff. So, um, you know, I don't know who had the idea to bring him back eventually with uh, Johnny Valiant or John Vallon or John L. Sullivan, as they as they called him initially, to form that tag team in Albano, who later became probably the most charismatic tag team that uh, the WWF ever had. Big fan of his. I remember Jimmy Valiant when he was later years in yeah. NWA. Boogie Woogie. The Boogie Woogie Man, I thought, you know, a, yes, a, a mid-carter, but... If you're talking about a, a whole card of wrestlers, he's the guy you want to see. He was very charismatic. He was he was a babyface at the time. Do you remember the first time you talked to him? Because I know later on in years you had him at one of your weekends of champions. Yeah, I did. I, I wanted to re, I wanted to reunite the Valiant brothers at that convention, but Johnny was um, talking to the WWF at the time, and Johnny didn't show up, even though he begged me to be at my 1991 convention, which I allowed him to do, but he didn't show up anyway. I talked to Jimmy Valiant for the first time. It was when the Valiant brothers were a tag team and when I started to get uh, press access, when I started to be able to go backstage and hang out with Napolitano and Bill Apter and and do the interviews back there. And then I and then I got to do a feature story 
on Jimmy uh, in 1977, and I went to a show in St. Louis at the historic Keel Auditorium where Jimmy was performing, and uh, we made a plan to meet at the hotel uh, and uh, got to the hotel and took some pictures of him and and then get my tape recorder out. And he's in the, you know, he's outside by the pool and he's, uh, hey, brother, man. He goes, just write whatever the hell you want, man. I don't care what you write, you know, just write it. And just, you know, use, you know, just say that you were me and blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, that's what a lot of guys did. But Jimmy was like, take the pictures. Uh, I don't need to do an interview, man. You just, you know, just, just write whatever you want. And that came out in uh, Ring Wrestling Magazine. When you're taking pictures of these guys, where are you taking them? I'm looking back at old pictures and it always seems to be yeah. in like a high school school gymnasium or no, no a high school auditorium with the curtain behind it that always, yeah well you know, the garden the garden had a nice um curtain background where we used to take the guys because uh, we weren't allowed in the actual dressing room at madison square garden back then in in the in the 70s uh there was an area in the back where everyone would stay you couldn't go where the guys were getting changed or you know you couldn't go in the actual dressing room and then they'd come out and we'd bring them to the back and that's where we conducted our interviews and that's where we took the photographs in philadelphia Philadelphia TV uh, was a different story. It was like it was like in the hallway uh, leading out to the ring with the dressing room right in back of us. And there was this wall. And I never forget, you know, we show up one day and someone had graffitied the wall. So it was like, how are we going to take our pictures now? Uh, but every arena was different. The garden had a really big setup. So it was a lot a lot of privacy. And uh, the curtain always looked nice in the background of the guys. But in this particular case with Jimmy, Jimmy Valiant, it was just at the pool. It was at poolside. He was, you know, he just posed, he flexed. Uh, and uh, those were the pictures that I took that night. And that was a, that was, I never forget that show. I mean, it was superstar Billy Graham was on that card with the WWF title. Uh, it might've been in 76 or 75 or six, you know, my memory yeah. shot, but he had the title and Harley race, uh, fought um, Dory Funk Jr. that night when I was for the NWA title. That was a crazy good match. I always loved seeing in the wrestling magazines wrestlers who were not in their wrestling gear. They could be in their street yeah. clothes, they can be in their car, or at the pool or something, or at yeah. home. It was always like, ooh, I'm getting an inside look. Yeah, I tell you a funny story. I mean, because uh, Grillo Monsoon, he he didn't like to pose a lot. I mean, he didn't wrestle. He didn't wrestle a lot, uh, you know, after a certain period of time. And he was the the booker. He was the matchmaker at, at the Philadelphia TV tapings. So we all wanted to, you know, we wanted to take some pictures of Gorilla. So he's there in his slacks, and all of a sudden he takes his shirt off. And he didn't have the most and he didn't have the, the singlet or anything. It was just him, you know, nude from the waist up, which, you know, was not the most uh, attractive thing in the world to look at. I should talk, but I'm not posing uh, for pictures. Uh, and then I, I have pictures of him wearing like business slacks, topless posing. And uh, those pictures are quite the sight. Hey, that's another thing. Like when, when someone comes running to the ring to help out, they always have their shirt off, but they have jeans on. You know, you always like, yeah, you couldn't put a shirt on. What's the matter? Couldn't put a shirt on? Uh, let's go to our uh, match number five, our second tag team of the night, the fabulous Kangaroos. I know you love these guys. Yes. Al Costello and Don Kent versus the rugged Russians, my guys, Igor and Ivan. Uh, couldn't understand why they booked it. Heel versus heels, tag team, you know, both heel tag teams. And the Russians, of course, without the mask, just took it away anyway. I mean, you don't want to see them with the, the cutout. Uh, and then the Kangaroos were always a, uh, historic tag team. I mean, they were uh, managed. Uh, they didn't have a manager on this particular show, but, you know, they were great because they used to throw these little boomerangs to the fans, you know, with a description of the kangaroos. And uh, But it was great to see them because they were so historic. It was such a big part of wrestling tag team uh, scene in the 60s. And this is like right around the time where they didn't really work that much longer, many years longer. But uh, to see them uh, at the garden, it was the second time I was able to see them because in August they had faced the Funks, which was an amazing uh, 45 minute draw. Uh, August 30th, and now seeing them again against the Russians. And once again, though, they didn't go over. You know, why wouldn't they go over against the Russians who were just kind of like this? Uh, tag team that you'd see on TV sometime, always winning uh, with the hoods. And then you see them at the garden, you know, with the cutout mask. Uh, they deserve to lose to the kangaroos, and they didn't. It was another freaking draw, and it wasn't something that uh, made me very happy that night. What were the kangaroos like then? They're not on top anymore. They're kind of like going on their way down or whatever. Mm -hmm. Are they still good workers at that time, or, you know, or is it more the gimmick? 
Well, the guys back then, I mean, work rate was work rate. I mean, if you knew how to throw, throw a good punch and you could drop kick and, uh, I mean, it wasn't as complex as it is today. So even though they were older guys, they still knew how to throw a punch and they still knew how to draw heat because they were, they were heels. And, uh, and so that's what the philosophy was back then. It's much different today, of course, but they knew how to get the crowd up and running. But I, I still think that it was a mistake uh, all these years later, 50 years later, uh, that they were matched against the Russians and uh, they didn't go over. And it was kind of a, a throwaway situation. It was kind of a time waster, two out of three falls at the Garden. And it was a long match. It was it was getting a little dull. I was yeah. wanting to see Blassie. You wanted to see your boy. And then match number six is another tag team match. But this, John, is your first time ever seeing a title change at Madison Square Garden. It's Carl Gotch and Rene Goulet defeated the champions, Luke Graham and Tarzan Tyler, to win the WWF Tag Team Championship. This went for 17 minutes and 20 seconds. And like we said earlier, we really don't know when Luke Graham and Tarzan Tyler got the titles in the first place. Right. But here's the here's the deal. I mean, you know, the lineups that are out there. And in this particular card, I remember Gotch and Goulet beating Graham and Tyler. It was the last match of the show. They went on last, even though this lineup is like from top to bottom. But it was the last match of the show when they won the title. So I remember people going crazy. And then, you know, we had to leave. We had to catch the train and all of that. So but it was the last match on the show. And I think during the Kangaroos Against the rugged Russians, we might have went out and got our tickets for the next show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the Blassie, uh, the main event was was uh, earlier on in the card. Interesting. Yeah, we didn't have that in our, our notes here, but that's interesting that they played. They did a main event one earlier. And maybe- yeah, what what they do? Well, they do a lot though. Tim is like on these lineups. I mean, they do it from opening match uh, uh, to main event, and they usually do like main event is always last in in the in the listings. Uh, but uh, in actuality, the that show really featured uh, the tag team title switch at the very end of the night. But we can, but we can go over it before because Blassie's the main event anyway. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about that yeah. next. But I was just wondering, like, we're still talking. I guess you know, if you if you had the Blassie match and everyone like yeah. yourself came to see Blassie, I used to DJ at bars, and what mm-hmm. they always would talk about is the last set. Have your best last set. And I had the best songs in my last set. Maybe I'll play one early or another one early, but I always had the best set last because when you walk out, that's what you remember. Mm -hmm. That's very true. And the fans left happy and we were happy because, you know, getting back to the actual match itself, Gotch and Goulet uh, doing their TV buildup as a tag team were getting over with the fans. They were two separate the types of wrestlers gotch of course was you know such a great technical wrestler and goulet had uh you know he had some great moves and they, they had a good chemistry between them and uh and tyler and graham obviously you know great heels with uh with captain lou albano and i don't even recall i don't remember if captain lou accompanied them out at ringside that day um but it was a uh, it was a historic because no one expected the title to you know Usually tag titles in that era were always uh, won or lost on TV. It was very rare that they would be won or lost at a show like the Garden or a house show. Uh, Like they never changed hands in Boston or Philly. It was always the Garden or TV. And the Garden was, uh, uh, you know, it was interesting to see an actual title change. And the fans left happy because Gotch and Goulet were crowned the new WWF tag team champions. It was a it was a very memorable uh, match for me, I remember, because I loved Gotch and Goulet as a tag team. You know, funny you say that about tag teams, because now you're reminding me that, yeah, I saw a lot of tag teams change hands on TV. I saw uh, Jay and Jules Strongbow beat Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito. I remember when Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas won the title from the what Samoans. Match. You know, these are just all TV stuff, and it never clicked until you just said that, that they're yeah. on TV. And, and then uh, other matches, you know, like Randy Savage beat Tito Santana at the Boston Garden, you know, or I think Don Morocco, I think he won his title at the garden at, at, at uh, Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. So they, I guess they're saving, you know, the big ones like the heavyweight championship and the intercontinental championship for bigger arenas, not just giving away on TV. 
True. Let's go to the match that you've been waiting for and everyone's been waiting for. But let, let's start off with, uh, before we get into the Pedro Morales defending his WWF heavyweight title against Freddie Blassie in a Roman gladiator match. First, I want to go back to Freddie Blassie. Uh, you saw him live for the first time last month. Now you're coming back this month and you're not coming alone. You're bringing something with you. Describe your thought process of you just saw Freddie Blassie and before you're going to see him again, you want to ask him something. Describe that for me because I don't know how you put this together. Yeah, well, it was kind of like uh, me loving Blassie the way I did and respecting him as a villain and the hero on the West Coast. And, you know, the more I read the magazines and got deeper into it and read about fan clubs, I, I wanted to start a fan club for Fred. And I read in the magazines that the only way that you could start a fan club is you need to get the wrestler's permission on a permission slip. So it was like I had this whole thing concocted in my head that I'm going to get this fan club started for Blassie and I'm going to meet Freddie Blassie at the garden on December 6th because I'm going to get this permission slip and I'm going to get backstage and Freddie's going to sign my permission slip for me and I'm going to get the chance to meet Freddie Blassie. So, I, you know, my little typewriter at home, I uh, I type out like a five-line permission slip. Uh, you know, I, Fred Blassie, uh, hereby give John Arezzi permission to start a fan club in my honor uh, signed and dated Fred Blassie, December 6, 1971. So here I am with my piece of paper and my friend who I went, you know, my friend was very skeptical, Frank Favalli. And he was like, you're not going to get backstage with that. I was like, I don't know. I'm going to try. You know, I want to start. What do you want to start a fan club? I said, I want to start a fan club for him. So we were kind of bickering back and forth. And I take this white piece of paper uh, typewritten and I go to the uh, entrance, the curtain, you know, where, where the guys come out and there's like three security guards there and they're not really very enamored to see a young kid like, you know, what do you what do you want? What do you want, kid? I was like, I want uh, I want to see Fred Blassie. I want him to get this permission slip signed because uh, I'm going to start a fan club for him. So if you could bring me backstage, it'll just take a couple of minutes and you're crazy. You're, what do you mean? You're not going backstage. And so I'm like, well, I need to get this signed. I mean, this is the way you have to start a fan club. And and I remember there was a younger security guard there and he was just looking at me and he was like, hold on a second. And he takes the paper and he goes backstage with it. And I'm sitting, you know, I'm standing there. I'm all like nervous. Maybe he's going to take me backstage. You know what, what that's going on. I'm waiting and waiting. And, and finally about five minutes later, he comes out with a signed permission slip. Freddie Blassie signed it, dated it. And uh, that was that. So, uh, and I'm so, I'm like, well, you know, you can't get backstage, but here's your permission slip. It's signed. And I go back to my seat and my friend is like, yeah, crazy. That guy just went backstage and he signed it. That's not Blassie's autograph. He didn't sign that. And, and it looked real to me. So I knew that Jeff Walton uh, who was the former Fred Blassie fan club president, who was also a promoter in Los Angeles and worked for the Olympic Auditorium as a PR director. I had his address from the magazine. So I put this little, I wrote him a nice letter and I'm starting Fred. And I, you know, I know you had Freddie Blassie's fan club and you're now a promoter and you're now PR. And I'm, I want to start a fan club for Blassie. He signed this permission slip. I didn't see him sign it. So I want to know if it's authentic and a nice letter. So I mailed it to California at the Olympic Auditorium. And about three weeks later, I get a package in the mail and I open it up. And it's a long letter from Jeff Walton saying that, yes, indeed, this is an authentic Fred Blassie signed permission slip. This is Freddie's signature. This is his handwriting. It's authentic. And also in the package was a bunch of programs from the Olympic Auditorium, which I loved watching on TV, some cardboard masks of Freddie Blassie with the eyes punched out. And I was like, holy smokes, it's real. I'm on my way. I could start the fan club now. So that was Jeff Walton changed my life in a lot of ways. And I got to meet the guy a couple of years ago at the Cauliflower Alley Club when they were giving him a, an induction. And Jeff and I stayed correspondence for a lot of years. And uh, it was a pleasure to finally get a chance to thank him uh, for what he did for me way back in 1971. Oh, wow. What a great story. And it, it's funny to hear you say it like this because Jeff Walton went from being a Fred Blassie fan club to being a promoter as you did also. That's right. I followed in his footsteps, I guess. But uh, what a great guy. And his son, uh, his son Scott, uh, got a chance to meet him. Good family, good people. And to this day, I just uh, I can never thank him enough for helping me. You know, you always talk about it. It's nice to be important, but it is more important to be nice. And you never know how what you do can affect other people. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And he could have just said, not even written you back. He could have just kept it or thrown it away. He didn't have to. He didn't owe you anything. No. And not only did he send it back to you, but he sent you a box of programs. I and know. The, and the face. That is really, really nice. And if, if it wasn't yeah. for that, we may not have you today. Right. I mean, that's the thing. You pay it forward, right? And and that's what I've always done in my life in wrestling. I've always tried to pay it forward to people and open a door and make a connection or be nice to someone. It's like, oh, what, do you, what, do you, what does it take to be nice and to have a gesture of kindness or help someone in, in whatever way you can. I mean, it's paying it forward and that's the way I live my life and always have been. And a lot of it maybe had to do with Jeff Walton doing that for me back in 1971. Absolutely. And I, I never told, I tell you this story now, but like one of the reasons I, I enjoy helping you, Richie and myself is um, not only working with you at the conventions, but years later we worked with, we didn't work with you. We knew you were doing a, a personal appearance with, Hawk from the Road Warriors. Mm-hmm. And I said, me and Richie go, we got to go. We got to go meet Hawk. And we get there to meet Hawk, and you pull us aside with Hawk yeah. to be with him and get a picture with him. And I don't even know if I got anything signed at the time. I don't know if, if I had anything at the time to sign for him. And I said to him, I wanted the picture with him. I wanted to get the picture from the poster at the time where Animal's down uh, on one knee and Hawk is doing the pressing on his back. And I got that picture real quick. I go, can I, can I get another picture? He goes, yeah, what do you want? I go, press me. And you said, whoa, 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 whoa. He goes, come here, kid. <laughs> and you're like, uh, I have a picture of Hawk from the Road Warriors pressing this fat tub of goo because I was, I didn't know how to be stiff or strict or, or put my hands anywhere. I knew nothing. Yeah. Straight up in the air. It was, it's, an, it's one of my favorite pictures of all time. When I show people, it still brings a tear to my eye because if it wasn't for you, I would never have gotten that. That yeah. is just like, and then we became friends, and we saw him at ECW, and we we we, we became his chauffeurs. That when he was in ECW, we got dinners and lunches with him. He was a fantastic guy. But if it wasn't for you, John, thank you for that. So when you always ask me like, why am I doing this? Because you were always nice to us. You didn't have to be. You all, you always been nice to Richie and myself. So we we enjoy. Well, you're doing good people this with you, too. You know? I mean, you know, we worked together at WGBB for a while, and uh, after Chris Brandemart was that his name? Chris yeah, Brandemart. Chris Brandemart. Doc, doctor, he's the he's Doctor Whitefinger. Uh, if you listen to the podcast, because uh, I'm listening now as we're doing the podcast, the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, uh, he's on each and every episode. And I call yeah. him Dr. Whitefinger every week because he cut his thumb and he had it wrapped up. Uh, and yes. uh, and then you come in like after Dr. Whitefinger. Then. Yeah, because Dr. Whitefinger had to be out for one time. So I came in and uh, yeah. we, tra- we traded back and forth for a little while and then we were in it, did it together. Um, and I, I'll tell you what, we'll have to get Dr. Whitefinger on one of your Zooms. <laughs> yes, we will. Because we, I got I got together with him recently on Facebook. We just no we found each other on Facebook. Yeah. He's still around. around. That's good. It's good yeah. to hear. Well, let's get back to the match. I know people listening go, how did the match yeah. end? Well, this is a yeah, Roman yeah. gladiator match. Um, yeah. What a farce. Yeah, what a farce. But first of all, uh, the Roman gladiator match, the first one was done in May 1970. Freddie Blassie took on his former tag team partner, Don Carson, uh, for Blassie's American title. Um, and there was a lot. I have a lot of, a lot of rules here. Um, no time limit, no disqualification, no doctor stopping, no holds bar, no, no pinfalls, no referees. No, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that you need to do to be an official Roman gladiator match. How many of these rules did you have at the garden? Do you remember where any of these? I do remember. And I know that the Roman gladiator death match was also a concept that was originated uh, with Jeff Walton and Fred Blassie in Los Angeles. You know, based on what you heard from what happened in L.A. for Roman gladiator death matches, nothing on this list took place at Madison Square Garden, even though they promoted it as a Roman gladiator death match because the New York State Athletic Commission would not allow this type of match even though they promoted it. It's not within their guidelines or their uh, covenants that you could have anything like this in New York State, or at least at the Garden. So how did they go over with the match? So first of all, there was no time limit, no disqualification, no doctor uh, stopping the match. Supposedly. No holes bar, no pinfalls, no referee, no uh, surrender. There was a referee. There was a referee, no surrender. Uh, Loser dragged around the ring. Yeah, none none of that happened. And there must be uh, call. They're also called for five judges at ringside. Did None, of like that? None, of None of it happened. None of it. None of it. None of it. Not a thing. It was stopped because of blood. It was a crazy seven minutes and change. Blassie was bleeding. Uh, it was a wild brawl. And then the referee uh, ruled that Blassie couldn't continue. And that was the end of it. 
Blasi didn't get pinned. But he lost. He did lose. So the match lasted an amazing amount of time, almost seven minutes, 14 yeah. seconds, which is an amazing amount of time. It, it just surprised me. Let me ask you, uh, going back to like these Blassie matches, his last match was a short match. Did Freddie Blassie do long matches, or did he have to do long matches? Could no. he just have been no, short here's matches? No, what, here's what happened. I mean, uh, Blassie was such a heel, and Morales was so beloved. They were afraid of a riot. So the match would quickly end if there was a, a crowd that seemed to be getting ready to surge the ring. And I think that's what happened in this match. I think it, it could have continued longer, but the fans went in such a frenzied uproar and things were getting thrown into the ring. And uh, there was a guy, I never forget it. I mean, a guy was billy clubbed because he tried to get into the ring. Okay, uh, let's I mean, go back. Let's go back to this atmosphere now. Now we're in the yeah. the, the match is coming up next. Last time I remember you telling us that you like you actually looked over and you saw his white hair because there's no music at the time. Right, people. no music. So you saw this guy with white hair and you knew it was Blassie. He's coming to the ring. Yeah. Now you also told me there were no ring. You know, the, there was no, no barricade. So what did they do when they knew they were going to have a match like this? Did they put more police out there? Yeah, more there's okay. a lot of there's a big police presence, the security guards, and they're all kind of billy clubs. And but there's still never enough in this particular show in this match. I mean, there was not enough. I mean, uh, you know, and once uh, you have to drag somebody out with a you know hitting him with a billy club, uh, you know, one of the craziest things that happened. It'll and it'll, we'll cover it next year. Uh, and I, I don't want to tip too much off, but a fan when 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 King Curtis uh, hit Mont, you know, bloodied Monsoon. And Monsoon hit a gusher, as they say in the business. I mean, uh, he he hit something, and hit, the blood was spurting out of his forehead. A fan ran into the ring and wrapped a towel around his head It wrapped a shirt or something to stop the bleeding. And, you know, and it, that was a surreal situation. But in this particular case, I mean, I think that's what the reason was why it was only seven minutes because Blassie could have gone longer. You know, he may not have been able to go 15 or 20 minutes consecutively, but uh, there were matches later on in Blassie's career when he fought Chief J. Strongbow, where it was a 20, 25, 30 minute match. So he could go. It wasn't go. a health thing. It wasn't a health thing for him because I know he had. No, no, he was old, but he could go. Okay, so uh, going back to the atmosphere at yeah. the Garden at this time, here it comes. You know, of course, you have Freddie Blassie come out first, being the challenger. Pedro Morales, being the champion, comes out. The match starts. Do you think backstage? You know, I'm sure they. they I want to ask you about like them sitting down with the ref and going, okay, if this thing starts getting out of hand, when should we go home? That would be a signal that takes place from the back. And then they would send somebody up to ringside and inform the timekeeper who would signal the referee. And, you know, and then the, there was no microphones or headsets like there is today, obviously. Uh, but that would have to be a, a call that's made from uh, Vince McMahon Sr. if he saw things getting out of hand a little bit. Oh, the commission could have just went, you know, this is getting out of hand. Stop it. And, and, and they would have the authority to stop the match by telling the referee and the referees were employees of the State Athletic Commission. It wasn't like it's today where they were employees of the WWE. Back then, all the referees were New York State Athletic Commission referees. They were all licensed and hired and paid by the New York State Athletic Commission. So they were they they were told when they when the commissioners at ringside and he gives an order, that order has to be followed, even though it was wrestling. But were they in on the, the were, were the referees in on it? Did they know they had to know they, they're the referees. That's the job of a referee. Well, yeah, know what's going yeah, on. That, uh, that part. Yes, of course. They knew that this match is going to be a finish uh, and, and, you know, and, and you give the signals or you say when it's time to go home or whatever. And, and usually the heel is calling the match anyway. So uh, whatever happened this night. Uh, for that match to be such short, uh, so short in duration, uh, there had to be some some concern that the crowd was going to erupt into a uh, a scene that no one really wanted to see. Yeah, and I just didn't. I was just thinking about like if I'm getting paid by somebody and then I'm listening to somebody else go, okay, this is what you because you like we said in other episodes, the commission didn't know that this thing was fixed, didn't know wrestling wasn't as authentic as it wanted to be perceived. So they were always believing everything that's going on. So if they came over and they to go, a hey, certain stop the extent, match. though, Timmy, yeah. I mean, they, you okay. know, they knew it was on, not on the up and up, but they did control it with an iron fist. 
They did. They had their rules and regulations, and it went back years and years previously to when Dick DeBruiser got banned for life at Madison Square Garden. The Sheik, the same thing, just because of the way they put the crowd up into a frenzy. Uh, so, I mean, the commission wasn't uh, they were not scared to ban to ban somebody for life. They were very strict and and they and they regulated wrestling back then almost as strict as they did boxing. Their jobs were primarily to oversee uh, boxing, but wrestling was part of it. It was considered a sport until McMahon declared it not a sport in New Jersey. And, you know, then the commissions finally, you know, eventually went away. But um uh, yeah, at that time, even though they knew it wasn't on the up and up, they still ruled it almost like it was a real contest. Interesting. Interesting. So how would you rate this card? It seems like you had, you had three tag teams in here. You had a title yeah. change. You had Freddie Blassie. Was this the favorite card you've ever seen? No. Was it one of, one of the top cards? Well, I was I was still new in attending live matches. It was great for Blassie. It was great for me because I got the permission slip signed. Uh, it was very disappointing for me because Blassie lost. And I knew that even though I wasn't totally smartened up yet, I mean, I still had the uh, slight suspension of disbelief in a way where maybe, you know, Freddie could win and he should win because he's Freddie Blassie and Morales. I, I, I didn't like, uh, he wasn't Bruno and, you know, and I felt, you know, I used to say that he had the, he used to bribe the referees, you know, I, just like, you know, Mark, you know, really, but that's kind of, a, if I have to rate the card, I mean, the, the, the go home, uh, tag team title one was great. I was exhilarated because of the the title change. I was disappointed, but still excited because I got the permission slip signed. I saw Freddie Blassie wrestle, and I was disappointed because I knew that, okay, he lost Morales, so what happens next? And what happens next is that he leaves the territory. And, and that's interesting, too, him leaving the territory. He's only there, like, we'll take back the Stan Stasiak. Stan Stasiak stays, and he goes down the card. So you see Stan Stasiak. If you're going to go to see any matches, you'll have six months to see Stan Stasiak. He'll, he'll be wrestling around for yeah. a while. But with Freddie Blassie being so short, I think it also makes it better go, oh, we got to go see him because he may not be back. So it gives a little urgency to go into these some matches because you may not see this person again. They may lose and never come back. So you never know who's coming and who's going. He was gone for a year after this show. That was it. He went back to he was in high demand in Los Angeles as a babyface. Uh, he did have some injuries in uh, 72, which put him out of action a little bit. And he was very still in high demand in Japan, and he wrestled in Hawaii a lot. So his his main territory really was Los Angeles and that Southern California market. And he was actually a promoter in one of the towns as well. I believe it was in El Monte, uh, California. And then he'd do his Japan stuff, and then he would do his um, – uh, you know, his, his Los Angeles stuff. And, and, uh, and that was kind of what he did in 1972. Why did he come to the garden then? Why do you think, what, what drew, do you think it was like they offered him a lot of sellouts? Okay. And he had a good relationship with Vince senior. Uh, and then eventually Vince jr. I mean, he was like a grandfather to the kids, uh, Vince's kids, uh, Vince jr's kids. Uh, and he was somebody that, uh, they knew that no matter where he was going to be, uh, they can ensure almost a sellout for him. And it was kind of cool because after I started the fan club, he wrestled at uh, the Brooklyn Rollerama in front of like 500 people. And I was there with my little sister and, and got to see him in like a little, little place. And I think he fought El Olimpico and beat him. So I was so happy. I got to see Freddie win, you know, and that was, uh, that was later on. That was in uh, 73. When did he start becoming a manager? 74. Uh, he had a run, uh, you know, after 73 and, and I got the postcard, you know, and, um, uh, that, that he wrote me telling me that he was going to be, uh, staying for an extended stay, uh, in New York. And I didn't know that he was going to come in as a manager initially, cause he didn't share that on in a postcard that he sent me from Japan. Uh, he just indicated that he was going to be there for a long time. And then he shows up as the manager of Nikolai Volkov, uh, really, um, and then uh, and then he did don the tights in June of '74 when he teamed up with Volkov against Strongbow and San Martino. So, um, as I'm, I'm shuffling through my papers here because I do have a I have a postcard from Freddie. Here it is. I'm going to read it to you. And we should put this also on Patreon, John. Absolutely, this will be on Patreon. The postcard will be there. Uh, having a wonderful time here in Japan so far. The wrestling tour has been a huge success. The weather has been perfect. Hope it continues until the tour ends. From here, I go to Hawaii for a 10-day stay to regain my suntan 
Hope everything is well with you, Fred. I'll be coming to New York for an extended stay after that. I, I forgot about the, the Freddie Blassie tan. For anybody who doesn't know, oh, back yes. in the day, very few wrestlers had tans, but Freddie Blassie was always the golden one. He always oh, looked yeah. great. He always had that beautiful tan. And that's funny. After Japan, I'm going to Hawaii to work on my tan. Yes. Uh, by the way, that postcard was July of 73. Wow. And uh, getting back to the matches, uh, so Pedro defended his title. And next month, since Freddie is out, we're going to bring in Professor Turo Tanaka to take on Pedro Morales for the championship. Yeah, they are pushing him hard. And uh, that was another one in the succession of uh, of contenders that were now going through Morales each and every month. They were bringing somebody in, won a few matches on TV with name recognition. And Pedro had a nice winning streak going on uh, as we get into 1972. Professor Tanaka, just like a lot of other wrestlers, come in for the title. They, they can't win the title, but then they start going down the card and doing other things. And then he became a tag team partner, I think, of Mr. Fuji. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. they uh, Tanaka was uh, beloved. I mean, he was a good worker uh, and he had a great uh, relationship with Vince. Uh, so he would come in and, um, you know, in this run, he, um, he, he he ascended pretty quickly. But I guess a long term plan. They, uh, they would plan this stuff uh, really not like it is today. I mean, there were there was long term booking here where they would decide what was going to go on. And, and what, what everybody says about Vince McMahon, he would always give somebody a start date and an end date. He said, you're going to start on this date. You're going to end on this date. This is what you're going to do during that time. And he was a man of his word. He never changed his, he never changed direction. So they knew when they did a deal with Vince senior and there were no contracts, it was all handshake that he was going to live up to what he said. And they'd get paid on this day coming in this your last day. Then you go. And that was it. That's how we that's how we did business with with the wrestlers back then. Interesting. And uh, going back to Tanaka, when did you do the Bond film? Remember, he was in a Bond film. I think it was was a Goldfinger. Or oh, yeah, like he was. Uh, I think that was uh, later on in the, in the mid 70s. I'm not really sure, but I know that it wasn't during this time period. I don't believe. And if you have any great memories from wrestling at the Garden in the 70s, please send them along. We'd love to hear from you. Send them john at metmemories.com. That's john at metmemories.com. And John will read your story and answer your questions. Yeah, you know what, Tim? I'm going to tell you something. There's not very many people that are probably alive back then. So we, we haven't gotten a story yet. So we I hope we, we hope we get one because there were – you know, I don't really run into anybody that was around during then. And I guess I'm a freaking old bastard now. Uh, but I still have the map memories, don't I, of the of this historic time. Listen, if your name is Bill Apter and you want to send a question in to John, we'll accept those also. Oh, my God. Yes, Bill. Send us a story. He's got plenty of the garden, as is uh, my good friend George Napolitano. Oh, George. I, you know, I okay. you mentioned him. I'll give you a great George Napolitano story real quick. George okay. Napolitano was working... Uh, he was shooting for the uh, UWF, and it was at that hotel in New York, wherever they filmed. Penta. I can't remember. The Penta Hotel. And I had just bought his book. He had, he had a wrestling oh, yeah. book. And I, I got there, and I was having people sign it, and then I saw him, and I said, would you mind signing this for me? He says, no problem. He goes, let me take it in the back for you. And he took it in the back, and he got um, – I know he got the Cheetah Kid for me, and he also got one of the Samoans for me in it. Paying it forward, paying it forward. That's that's Georgie. He did that with me all the time. He opened up doors. He introduced me to people. He said I was okay, you know, meaning that I'm okay. You you know, you could you could talk to him. Uh, uh, That's that's the power that George had. And he uh, he was a mentor to me in a big way. Good guy. He's still, we, we'll have to get him on the podcast because he's, he's just a great guy to talk to. And he also has great stories. And he was also he at your convention. Every year he, he showed Every up. year. Yeah. Yeah, we were like, you know, freaking frack. I mean, we traveled the roads together. We did so much. And I would love to have George even kind of reminisce with us here one, 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 on one of these episodes. And if you'd like to be one of the first people to hear 50-year flashback of wrestling at Madison Square Garden, all you got to do is go to our Patreon www.patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Members in the Superfan, PWS Associate Producer, Producer, or Executive Producers tier will get access to this show early. And starting at only $5 a month, it'll get you in the door and you'll have access to all the original Pro Wrestling Spotlight original broadcasts from 1989 to 1995. And the higher the level, the more benefits you'll get. 
From Zoom calls with John Rizzi, access to 8mm films we discuss here, to unseen videos, and vintage magazines being sent out to you. And there's only one way to experience it all, and that's becoming a member of John's Patreon page. Patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Join the community, hear the history. Patreon.com slash John Rizzi. We've been talking all the time about you, Patreon, John. New stuff coming in all the time. That is correct. I mean, we're always uploading stuff. I mean... Right now, there's got to be 150 uh, different posts up there with vintage archives of mine. And uh, I mean, for five bucks to get in, uh, $10 level gets you a little bit more as this 25 and up and up. Uh, I think you'll be very satisfied. Uh, and it's really, you know, instead of buying one, one Starbucks coffee, send it over to me at patreon.com slash John and you will relive this history. And, and do me a favor, John, since I, I never ask you for anything, but if you can please put some of this uh, Freddie Blassie commem- stuff on on there today. Like, if you, if you can find, I know you have it somewhere, the card that he signed. I would love to see that. Oh, yeah. the uh, the Which one, the postcard or the permission slip? Well, you read the postcard. Definitely put the postcard. But if you can find the permission slip. I know I where the permission slip is. All right. It's in Canada. You need to get it back. It was book research. So, yeah, I have to get it back. Or at least have him take a picture of it so you can post it. I want it back. It's, you know, it's mine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we want to thank again Scott Teal for his great book, Wrestling at the Garden. Yes, you could get it. Still available. Crowbarpress.com. Scott Teal's wonderful Bible that he did with a guy named uh, Fred Hornby with a lot of it and J. Michael Kenyon. Uh, it's a fabulous book. It's a, it's our Bible here for this podcast. Fantastic. Anything else, John? No, man, I really appreciate it. This is uh, uh, getting really uh, exciting every month. And now that we're officially a podcast and we'll be out there distributed internationally, uh, I think the fans are really going to enjoy what we have in store for them as we keep reliving this history from the Mecca, Madison Square Garden. For John Arizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time. 